Turn in your Bibles tonight to the 18th chapter of Job. Job 18. And Brenda, thank you so much for being willing to help out tonight. I really appreciate it. Not ready, quite ready to lead music yet, so need all the help I can get. <laughs> not yet, not yet. But one of the reasons I was always or I've been a little hesitant to preach Job is because of the middle of Job, because of where we are right now. I didn't know how I would handle the middle when the dialogue is what takes center stage between Job and his friends. The first two chapters of Job uh, are a treasure trove. Um, the last few chapters when God appears and then we have resolution at the end are a gold mine. The middle is tedious. And I say tedious because I... I, I can't think of a better word, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful or a dismissive way, as though God's word was poorly written. What I mean is for the sake of preaching, there are only so many ways you can go sometimes in Job. But last week, uh, tonight, and then in two weeks when we gather again, we have the Hanging of the Greens next Sunday, I want to explore in these second and third cycles of the dialogue some of the larger issues that are unsaid, but that are being addressed by the text. If you remember last week with Eliphaz, we talked about the need for us to end our speculation about things when God has revealed His Word to us, right? That there's a danger in sidestepping revelation to arrive at different conclusions. Uh, different conclusions. That's not faith. It's arrogance when we do that. Tonight with Bildad, the second friend, his second and third speeches, we have the opportunity to look at how wisdom, because a theme in Job is the search for what wisdom actually is. Uh, but to look at how wisdom can be found in Jesus Christ, yes, but still not in a way where God becomes exhaustible, right? That because God has revealed Himself in Jesus, because God has made Himself knowable, now that means there's nothing unknowable, unknowable about Him. That's not true. Even though God is knowable, there is still much of God that is just unknowable. And it's not due to our own sinfulness or our inability to be holy. That's due to the fact that God is Creator and we are His creation. That's all it is. We are from the dust. God has no beginning. Nobody made the God who is three in one. But I believe there is actually comfort for us in that that comes to us from God. And that's where I hope we can get tonight. Bildad continued to press his point, as he did before, that God punishes the wicked, which is why he was punishing Job. It was impossible that Job could be righteous and suffer because the way Job is suffering is the way the wicked suffer. Job realized once more that his friends and everyone else had abandoned him, but he continued to believe that God ultimately would not could not abandon him. This caused him to reflect, as we'll see, on the majesty of this God that neither he or his friends had any business trying to comprehend, really. And tonight, where I, I want to take us is to understand that it's not a sin when we can't understand God or His ways in our lives. That is not a sin. He has redeemed us, and we will see Him with our eyes. And of that, we can and should be sure. So let's hear and believe God's word together. I'm going to read 18 for us to begin. This is the second 
address from his friend, remember we use that term loosely, Bildad the Shuhite, answered and said in verse 2, How long will you hunt for words? Consider and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you? Or the rock be removed out of its place? Should all the things that are true change because of you and what you're going through, Job? Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes throw him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel, a snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground, a trap for him in the path. Terrors frighten him on every side, and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished, and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. In his tent dwells that which is none of his. Sulfur is scattered over his habitation. His roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. His memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. They of the west are appalled at his day, and horror seizes them of the east. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. So again, in the latter part of the speeches, it becomes less of a dialogue. That's a nice way to put it. It becomes more of an all-out fight. Bildad does not want to offer Job any hope. He wants Job to see that his questioning of God is wrong, and they'll have it, it'll have bad consequences. So in these first four verses, Bildad comments actually on how stupid Job's argument has been, how elementary it is, and how foolish it's been for him to question the wisdom or the tradition of the past that everybody knows is true. Then in verses 5 to 21, he just goes on this tirade, right? It just starts to ramble if you are reading it on uh, uh, about the fate of the wicked. That's what he's talking about here and how horrible their end will be. Who, who's he talking to? Right? There's nothing to do with Job. God has made that clear from the beginning of the book, but He's saying this will be your fate if you continue on your present course, Job. What I'm describing to you is what wicked people will experience. Remember, Job's friends reach conclusions about Job that are the complete opposite of God's declarations about Job. Job, you're an indescribably wicked man. That's what He's saying. And God is going to punish you even more than He already has. That's chapter 18. Now let's hear Job's response now in chapter 19. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, Know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone, and my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. Remember that. He believes that God is his enemy. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and around my tent. 
He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say how we will pursue Him, and the root of the matter is found in Him, be afraid of the sword. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. Job is frustrated. He's exasperated. And understandably so, right? His friends mistreat him. God won't answer him. His brothers, his relatives, his guests, his servants, even his wife are all estranged. Even young children despise Job. He's become the man in the town that everybody makes fun of, right? No one has stood with him. And yet we find again this ongoing grip on hope in this man. Here the hope is that he has a kinsman redeemer who will come to his aid. Even though, remember, it seems like for the most part, Job believes that God is acting as his enemy. Job cannot move from the fact that no one else can bring about a change in his situation except God. So that's his only hope. In the first six verses here, he wonders how long he'll have to keep being tormented by his friends. If he sinned, it's between him and God anyway. It has nothing to do with them. Have you ever thought about that? Like, what are they doing? Like, he didn't hurt any of them. He didn't offend any of them. Even if he had done something wrong, this punishment is completely out of proportion to it. Because he can't, it wasn't big enough that he can even remember what it was, if that's the case. In verses 7 through 12, Job cries out that God won't answer his cries. There's no justice. God has blocked his way. He's covered his path. He's stripped him of his dignity. He's broken every aspect of his life. He has nothing left. In verses 13 through 20, we see that frustration with his family and acquaintances. Even his body has failed him. We don't know how much time is passing here. That he's been like this. There's no place for consolation now. It's the world against Job. His abandonment by everybody not only leads him to despair, but makes him realize even more that if help is going to come, it's going to have to come from God. It's not going to come from anywhere else. And in light of the fact that he feels like God is his enemy, in light of the fact of everything he's going through, that's amazing faith. It's amazing faith. We're watching, we have the opportunity, for lack of a better word, to watch this man completely bottom out and break down. And yet you will not see him lose even that tiny grip 
little grip that he has on his faith. That's verses 21 through 27, his hope of being vindicated. When Job used the word redeemer here, that in the Hebrew is goel, is, is that word. It's a concept that's later expressed by that, not remember, Job is after uh, the books of the law and the Bible, but in, historically, chronologically, he was before, he existed before the law uh, was instituted at Sinai. That concept of a goel, of a redeemer, will come out through the law, but it's a close relative, a goel, a redeemer in this case, is a close relative who is willing to act on behalf of a person in their family if he or she finds themselves in trouble. Our, we're most familiar with it through the book of Ruth, the story of Boaz and Naomi, which is a beautiful, one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible. But a goel could redeem family property that has been sold due to financial hardship. It could get it back. Uh, a family member who has had to sell himself to pay off a debt or a redeemer could avenge the blood of a family member who had been murdered in, in Job's time, his understanding of the word. Job's use of the word reveals that he is most likely thinking of God. That maybe God could actually come in and be his redeemer, which is an amazing thing. Remember, he has no doctrine of salvation in his time. Not that there is not salvation. Job just, there's no, been no revelation of it. But Job has this idea because of his belief in who God is that just maybe he's thinking, I need a redeemer. It isn't going to be anybody from my family and friends, right? He says, maybe God, maybe God would step in and redeem me. It's a beautiful thought. He feels alone. Everybody's against him. He's being accused. He's in trouble for something he didn't do. So what else, what other hope do you have but that someone stronger than you who has abilities you don't have has the power to come in and redeem him and save him, right? It's, it's that desperation. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie uh, Taken with Liam Neeson. Wonderful story about a man who goes and gets his daughter back after she's been kidnapped. And I remember, I think I was talking to Christy about that. That was years ago when that first came out. And I, one of the, the kids asked me, Dad, would you do that for me? And I said, I, I would love to be able to do that for you, but I, I'm not a former Special Forces operative that has the ability to do those things. Like, I, I, I think I, I could come and get you, but like if you're in France, I don't know what I'm going to do, right? Job, Job is, is, which of course I would. I didn't mean that. I'm just saying, you understand, like, you, sometimes you need somebody that has abilities and power you don't have to rescue you. That's where Job is at this point in his life. There's hope that God would be this for him. That's the only hope that he has. You see, he's, he's pushed against the wall. So, so God is in charge of everything, so God is the only one that can help him, even though, obviously, in his thinking, remember, it's not true, but in his thinking, obviously, I've offended God, but God is the only one that has the power to help me. The question here is whether this will happen for Job. The question is, will this happen during my lifetime? Will this happen after I die? Remember, they, they didn't have an ironed-out theology from God about what happened when you die. They're, for the most part, for the most part, they're just guessing in about everything they say. But Job's one hope, the one thing that he knows, the one thing he knows is that he will behold his Redeemer with his own eyes. Either from the dust of the ash heap he's sitting on or when he hopefully gains his audience with God, maybe after his death. But that's all he has. And that's enough. That's enough here to hold him steady. The idea that God might redeem him. And Job says, I, it has to be. I know that he will. I know that he will. Remember, God is not punishing Job 
because Job sinned. God is not punishing Job because Job doesn't get it. And even though Job doesn't get it and he will sometimes go too far in his complaints, Job is right. God will redeem this man. It will have a happy ending. One day God, Jesus will answer Job. That's the ultimate answer. And Job didn't know that during his lifetime. But like we've said before, I bet Job knows it now. (laughs) I bet he knows it now. But he closes this speech in 19 with a warning, if you you hear it to his friends, that, look, not only are you wrong, but you're doing great spiritual damage to me and to whatever the cause of God is because you don't speak on his behalf. And you will pay the consequences for that is what Job is saying to them. Now, let's skip up if we can to chapter 25 and see Bildad's third speech against Job. Chapter 25. I hope to be able to bring this all together. He, this is very short. Job, Bildad's third speech is very short. And, and then we're going to look at Zophar in two weeks, the third friend. But you'll notice there's no there's a second speech from Zophar. There's no third speech from him. And Bildad's third speech is very short and, and terse, really. That's because the author's showing us their arguments are winding down. They're running out of things to say. Thank God, Right? They're finally going to stifle it. But here, in 25, is this last outburst from Bildad. Then we'll go right into Job's response in 26. Because he's actually, it's very interesting here. He he builds on Bildad's declaration of God's majesty, but from a slightly different angle. So let's take a look in chapter 25. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? It's a great line. It's a great line. How then can man be in the right before God? Does that sound familiar? Remember that vision or whatever it was that Eliphaz had, the oldest of the friends that they all kind of trust in? These guys never move from that theory, right? How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright. Stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. So pious. Like it sounds so good, but these guys are just, they just miss the mark so badly. It's, it's very cut and dry here, right? What he's saying is, I think, in essence, God is so great. Who would God ever think is righteous? The problem is that that isn't a statement of worship here. It's another tool to beat Job over the head with. He's saying to him, stop saying that you haven't done anything wrong. That's what he's saying to Job, and the shortness of it makes it even harsher. Here's the thing. At what point did Job ever claim to be perfect? That was not Job's claim. Job never said, I'm perfect. There's nothing wrong with me. What Job is held to is that he's innocent of any certain deed that has caused this current suffering. That's all Job has been saying. But they won't agree with him, so they just keep getting more angry. They keep getting meaner as it goes on. And again, the biggest problem with the friends is not that everything they say is false. That line, upon whom does his light not arise, is a tremendously God-honoring sentence. Where in the universe... Is there a single person or thing upon whom God's light does not arise? Like God owns everything. It's a beautiful thing to say. The problem with what they say is that it never applies to Job. (laughs) 
It, 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 it never has anything to do with Job's situation. That's what presumption does, right? That's what presumption about God, either in the lack of revelation or when we ignore revelation. Presumption eventually ignores the truth, which is especially poignant to realize when none of Job's friends have been given any access to the truth of what is going on. Job agrees that God is more majestic than can be understood. He affirms God's greatness and dominion as the very reason his friends couldn't possibly understand his situation to the degree that they think they do. In a master stroke of genius here, Job uses Bildad's argument against him. Look at chapter 26. Then Job answered and said, How you have helped him who has no power. How you have saved the arm that has no strength. How you have counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge. It's, it's, it's getting a little chippy. In 26. With whose help have you uttered words and whose breath has come out from you? The dead tremble under the waters in their inhabitants. Sheol is naked before God and Abaddon has no covering. He stretches out the north over the void. This is beautiful here. He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power he stilled the sea. By his understanding he shattered Rahab in his time a we think a, a mythological sea creature of some time, of some kind to these men. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Job is better at ascribing majesty to God than Bildad is. Do you see that here? He says, I see your claim that God is amazing and I raise you about eight verses. Right? It's just beautiful. Job proclaims that this God they're all talking about, he says, you know what, Bildad, you're right. We haven't even scratched the surface of how majestic he is. The implication here then is what should have resulted from that is really for all of them, then what can any of us really know here? That's where this should have went. We've said that a few times. In the book of Job ideally would be very short. There wouldn't have been nearly as much talking and speculating. But that's the thing here, that sometimes that's what you have to do. It's just what we don't know what else to do, right? We, we don't know what else to do. Nobody truly knows or understands all of this God's ways, even a man who believes that God will be his redeemer. The poetry here is amazing. It's, it's, I mean, for example, it's, it's no easy thing, I would imagine, to make the pillars of heaven tremble. And God can do that with his voice. You know, do you remember that beautiful vision from Isaiah in Isaiah 6? Right, that, that when he, when, when the, the seraphim speak, the foundations of heaven shake. If the voice of the seraphim can make the foundations of the heavens shake, 
Imagine the voice, beloved, of the Almighty. You ever been? How many of you, by show of hands, have ever been to Niagara Falls? Okay, you know that roar. You can hear it from far away when you're getting close. Then you get up to it, and it's just deafening. When God talks, it, that's it's something like that, right? I mean, we're we're, we're just. There just comes a point where we're, we're, we don't have any choice but to just bow down. Like it's, it's just amazing here. And that's what Job is after. He's, he's heavily implying that the counsel of people who don't really understand anything about their subject is not helpful. Right? Bildad says that God will punish the wicked. Which means Job, because Job adds to his wickedness by claiming to be righteous, right? Job is the most wicked among them in their eyes because not only is Job wicked, obviously he's being punished, which is not true, remember that, but Job also claims to have not done anything. So Job is calling God a liar is what these men... Religious fervor is very dangerous. When you think you're right, when you think you're, you're on God's side, you can say amazingly hateful, evil things to people, but you're right, so, so what? It's so dangerous... Job responds by saying his hope for redemption comes from God alone, even though God is the one who has crushed him. And he doesn't know why. He doesn't know why. All he knows is that God is his only hope. A God who is so majestic and mysterious that they haven't even begun to understand him. We'll dig into this a lot when we get there in a few weeks. It won't be, I think we'll be finishing Job right at the beginning of the year. Um, when Job repents at the end of the book, Job is not repenting for sins. Job doesn't make God a liar at the end of the book, right? He's not repenting for sins. When Job repents, what it means is that Job is ending his case against God, that God was his enemy, that he stops believing that. That's how he repents. His mind changes about God. And again, that does not happen because God made everything clear. God made nothing clear. God deepened the argument about how majestic and unsearchable he is at the end of Job. No, it's because God showed Job his glory, which was so mind-blowing it enabled him to set his questions aside. Right? That's the thing. The questions don't get answered. They're still hanging out there. But when God shows his glory, Job says, you know what? I'm going to set these aside. I'm going to set these aside. Beloved, I know we live in a period in time where God has revealed more of himself to us than he had revealed to Job in his time. I totally understand that and agree with that. But let's be honest for a few minutes here. Has suffering really become any easier to deal with or understand? Now that we know more. I mean, if you lose someone that you love, that, that's where I just, I think the hardest thing to deal with maybe. It's not like now, it, it, it's, we can just walk right on because we have more light that's been shed on us. It, it, that doesn't happen. Maybe for some it does, which is wonderful. It, it should, <laughs> right? The, the more revelation God has given should comfort us more, but we're still struggling to understand how to suffer, what it all means. We've basically, I think, with 2614 in mind, what has happened for us where we live is that 
we've basically just come a little closer to the outskirts. And if that's the case, how much can you and I really know beyond the revelation of God and His Word? Revelation hasn't revealed all the answers. What it's revealed is that all the answers aren't necessary. Jesus is necessary. That, that's the glory of God revealed for us, beloved. For, for Job, for Job, it, it, it's God speaking out of the storm, which is terrifying. And, and, and having to say, okay, you're right. I'm wrong. I'll be quiet. For you and I, it's God sending Christ, sending His Son, and us seeing what He's accomplished for us. That's, we, we, we see more. But we still suffer. We still don't understand sometimes. One of the amazing things about the book of Job is that it doesn't simplify suffering at all. Right? The purpose of the book, I don't think, is to explain why we suffer. Because, think about this, if that was the purpose of Job, the simple answer is in the beginning. People suffer because the devil goes after them. Right? Done. We get it. But that's not it, is it? Because we find out right away that the devil can't do a thing without sovereign permission. He can't breathe near you without permission from God. So now not only do we wonder why we suffer, now in Job, God brings up, God is the one that brings it up. Now we wonder what role God has to play in our suffering. That doesn't make things easier to understand. It makes them harder to understand in a way. God gets more difficult in some ways to comprehend in Job, not less But what we know for sure as we go through Job is that the way God orders His universe, this is what we know for sure, is sometimes very complex and very hard to understand. And I think it's possible that a purpose in Job, I hesitate to say the purpose, but I think a purpose in Job is to show the sufficiency and necessity of God to be a Savior even though He is impossible to fully understand. I, I do wonder if that's also a part of salvation. Is that there's this covering for the distance between us, between creature and creation. God's response to Job's friends at the end of the book for all that they've said. And remember, you just heard me say a few minutes ago that sometimes what these men say is, is, is correct and God-honoring. And I think in a way that's true. The problem with what I'm saying is what God says at the end of the book that these friends have not spoken correctly about it. right? So I do think we have to temper somehow our understanding of the positive things the friends say about God, while Job, who expressed increasing doubt and frustration and complained, which is a sin, he's vindicated by God for being the only one in the book who spoke correctly about God. Do you see in that what redemption does for you and I. God isn't approving or disapproving us based on what we do and do not get about it. God approves or disapproves based on one thing. And here, do you remember, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That covers everything. Abraham did some of the shadiest things in the Bible. Right? Lot. Think about this for a minute. In Second Peter, when it's talking about 
the history of, 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 of many that believed and were righteous. The Bible calls Lot righteous Lot. Now, we'll get into it when we get there in Second Peter, but I'm sure many of you know where Moab and Ammon come from and the role that Lot played in that. Lot was not a righteous man. He, Lot, when those, that crowd came to Lot's door when the angels were inside his home before God was about to rain down fire and sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah, do you remember what Lot said to that crowd? Uh, I can't, I can't send the visitors out. That would be bad decorum, but you want me to send out uh, my daughters? Righteous Lot? That's awful. Awful. This is what the righteousness of Jesus does to history. It sanitizes it for the redeemed. That's how sufficient the blood of Jesus is. That's how sufficient the righteousness of Jesus is. That when Jesus is laid over your record, God calls you righteous. And when we get to the end of Job, I think that's what's happening. God loves faith. And that's all Job could cling to. So when he gets to the end, God says, you guys didn't know what you were talking about. Job did. Job is the one, very interestingly, at the end of the book, that will pray for his friends in a priestly way and make sacrifices for them. God approves or disapproves us based on one thing. Do we believe that He can save us? Do we believe that He will save us? That is where the friends fail. They took the unknowability of God as permission to fill in the blanks rather than a reason to cling to Him in faith and hope that He would save them. What should have happened, and again, in a very real way, hindsight is twenty twenty. but what should have happened is that they looked at their friend Job, who was righteous, and said, if He's getting this, what's going to happen to us? God, please be merciful to us. That would have been the right thing to do. The book of Job is not to be dismissed because Jesus has come and now we have some answers. It, it's, that's not why this book is here. Job is in the Bible because we all wrestle with many of the same questions when we suffer. Because even though God has revealed more, He hasn't revealed everything. We are still on the outskirts when you consider how big and majestic God is. And so the book still speaks to us right now tonight. It speaks to us. There is a ladder between heaven and earth tonight for us in Job. The ladder is Jesus our Redeemer, and He comes with words of hope and peace. Ironically, beloved, sometimes it's as simple as this. Job's sin didn't separate him from God here. His humanity did. The fact that he was just a creature and God is Creator. Sometimes the distance between here and heaven isn't so great because we've done something wrong, but because we don't have all the information. You, you, you feel this. If, if you think somebody is aware of a secret, a very tasty piece of information that you would like to have, you feel like they have an element of power over you. They have an advantage over you. Right? There's distance there. They know something that you don't. Well, multiply that times a billion and to start with. And, and, and there's information God has that we just, we just don't have access to. Now again, I don't mean it as though God is playing some cruel game with us, or God is capricious, or God is withholding from us something that we need. Not at all. 
I'm saying, beloved, don't ever forget the distance between us and God. Not just for the sake of your theology, but for the sake of admiring Jesus more for closing it in salvation. For the sake of salvation. Sometimes we get mixed up. We just get mixed up. It's okay to not understand why you're suffering. Did you know that? Please, if you need that tonight, take that as a lifeline. When you walk through suffering, you are not... like like it, It's not like God is playing this game with you that if you can figure out why, it will go away. Again, I know that we've talked about this before, but why do we think that if we knew why, we'd feel better? Maybe we couldn't handle the why. Do we really think Job would have been comforted to know why this was happening to him? That God God would say, well, here's what's going on. Satan came to me. He was running his mouth. And so I thought, you know what? Why don't you, why don't you mess with Job for a while? Why don't you take everything from him? Why don't you kill his family? Right? I mean, would that, I don't understand all that. I, I, but could, like, would the why have helped this man? It would have crushed this man. It's mercy in some way, isn't it? That God, I don't think we can handle that information because we can't understand that information. We just can't understand it, beloved, and it's all right. If you can't understand, it's all right. It's all right. It's okay to have questions. It's not a holiness issue. right? It can become cynical and sinful. Again, when God has revealed something and we, we, we want to reject it and question it, absolutely. But it's not always proof of the weakness of our faith because we can't understand something. Sometimes we can't understand because we're on the outskirts and you can't see everything from the outskirts. You know what we need to remember out here on the outskirts? We need to remember that God remembers that we are dust. That's what we need to remember. He knows our frame. I think we feel an obligation as believers, and I, 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 it's t- I understand it, I think, we feel this obligation not to have questions because we hear, we see in the Bible that God is so sufficient and so we automatically think our questions are sinful and riddled with doubt and maybe they are sometimes. So we just beat ourselves up, you know. Oh, if I could only have more faith. I mean, I know God is sufficient. Why do I doubt? Beloved, maybe. I think you see this in Job. Maybe our doubt is the proof of our faith, not evidence against it. Nobody in here is trusting in unicorns to bring them all the answers, right? <laughs> it's not like we're, we're again, like, like Job. Job doesn't become an atheist because he doesn't have, doesn't have answers. We know God is our only hope, even against all hope sometimes, which is where Job was. I want you to remember that when that's the case, when, when you are so crushed and so bottomed out that all you can say is, I have no clue what you're doing. I have no clue what's going on, but you are God, and I will trust you that God calls that righteous. Don't ever forget that. If you fall flat on your face, at least you know you're headed in the right direction. Right? (laughs) You want to consider something amazing tonight. We, We know that God is sufficient. Right? But technically, we don't know just how sufficient He actually is. 
That's where the hope comes in not knowing. Is that there's an ocean we just can't get to. It's, we will someday. Now, I don't think we'll ever become God. Right? I mean, for eternity, He's inexhaustible for eternity. I mean, that's, you're, you, we're going to be with Him forever. And we will never run out of reasons to be amazed. That's amazing. This is where the hope comes. You and I will hit a wall at some point in what we can grasp. We'll hit a wall in some point, at some point in what we can accomplish, what we can believe, what we can know, what we can even do. We'll always hit walls. Not our God. And God is not judging us because we aren't Him. He rescues us because we aren't Him. At our limits, on our outskirts, is where God begins. Faith is what's necessary when all the self-dependence has died, which is why God counts faith as righteousness, as something that covers all the shortcomings. Not because it's virtuous in and of itself, but because it's the only thing that takes every ounce of credit off of us and puts all of it on Him. That's what faith is saying. I can't, you can. I'm not, you are. God doesn't withhold comfort for us until we know it all. What He's let us know is that there is a Redeemer, which is Him saying that He loves us and He cares for us and He's rescued us. That we can know and should believe with all our hearts. The primary bent of God to us is mercy. We're beloved. That's what primarily characterizes our relationship with God. We just don't know it, I think, or realize it. Mercy. Like... We aren't even aware on a daily basis of how much mercy we get or how much mercy we need. Right? That's why it... Like, if if you want to live your Christian life believing that you have to do the books, you better be really good at recording. Right? That, that, That God isn't going to cover... Like, God is going to cover you for stuff you forget. All right? That's the only hope we have. That's why Jesus stayed on the cross until He died. To offer payment in full. This is our hope tonight. What the gospel proves is that God's grace goes further than our sin. God's faithfulness goes further than our lack of it. So if there's any difference tonight between us and Job, it's not necessarily that we understand better, it's that we know the name of the Redeemer. And our Redeemer. I think... In closing tonight, Job is presented to us more than anything maybe as an example of faith. We're not redeemed based on whether or not we pass the information equals perfect understanding test. We're saved by grace through faith in our Redeemer. What Jesus means is not that now we have all the answers, but that now we know the name of the one who will redeem us. Whether or not we are able to obtain all the answers. So, beloved. It is not a sin when we can't understand God or His ways in our lives. He has redeemed us, and we will see Him with our eyes. Of this, we can be sure. And if we can be sure of that, we'll be just fine, no matter what. Bildad's view was too mechanical. 
It's too cut and dry. We don't want to be like that. Bildad and the friends were unable to handle any contradictions. Therefore, Job's suffering had to mean he sinned. No other explanation was plausible. Now, when that is said by God to be unwise and wrong at the end, consider then how this fact should inform us and our tendency to jump to conclusions about the suffering or misfortune of others or of ourselves. Don't do this to yourself. Don't walk into suffering and start saying, what did I do? Beloved, you might have done something. Or, more likely, you just live where everything is broken. It's, it's, just, it's not all going to work out. I wish it would. I wish it, my goodness, I'm a father now. I don't want to think about bodies breaking down and dying and all these things. But it's just, it's just in the cards. Sometimes that's why we suffer. Because the world's broken. Right? The, the, the hope there is what? That we have a Redeemer. This is always the hope. Always. Don't jump to conclusions. Unless the conclusions are what you know. Contradictions are a reminder that we can't see the whole picture. That's all they are. They're not actually contradictions. They're just a reminder that we don't see the whole picture. That we're created and not creator. And what we really need is a Savior. So tonight, as Linda comes, start there. Bank on your need. Respond to God from a place of need. Not confidence. There's mercy for the broken. God does not look on the proud. So be what you are. Be broken and come to Him. And have Him make you whole. Alright? We're going to sing a last song here of invitation. I'll be down front if any of you need to pray about anything. Also remember once again that the front's always open if you'd like to become a member of our church and want to let me know that and we'll talk through that. That's, that's fine as well if this is the time you'd like to do that. But let me, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the word that comes to us in this book of Job. I pray, Father, that we would find hope when we can't understand. Lord, that, that sometimes things don't make sense, not because we've done something wrong, but because we just don't have all the information. I pray that we would never mix up the two, Lord, as you um, watch over and heal our hearts and make us whole. And so, Father, I thank you for your word that guides us, your spirit that bears witness to us about the truth about Christ. And so, Lord, watch over us, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.